Welcome to the 22nd podcast of Rising Tide. This is David Helvarg and my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. And today we're talking with our friend Geraldine Nats, Professor of Practice and Policy of Engineering at the University of Southern California. From 2006 to 2014, Geraldine was also the first female director of the Port of Los Angeles, also the first marine biologist to run any major port. Um, along with the Port of Long Beach, uh, where she'd also worked as managing director. Her joint port's Clean Air Action Plan reduced air pollution in the port complex 70% in five years. So along with being past president of both the American Association of Port Authorities, International Association of Ports and Harbors, and having many other titles and honors, including a Peter Benchley Award, I should add. Uh, she's what I consider the founder of the global greening ports movement now underway. So, uh, Geraldine, welcome. And let's start with a um, quick background, which is how do you become a marine biologist and how does a marine biologist end up directing a major port? Oh, well, that's really a good question. Well, first, thank you, David, for inviting me and Vicki. Um, this is going to be great. So, you know, I grew up on New Jersey, you know, and in Jersey, you go to the shore. And, you know, not the beach, it's the shore. And so I studied marine biology um, when I was at Rutgers, and I was just fascinated with the invertebrates, and I learned how to dive. And so when I came out to California, I was at USC, and um, they were looking to hire an environmental scientist at the Port of L.A., and um, I went and applied for the job and I was a diver. And at that time, they had this idea that they could mitigate for a habitat destruction. And so their idea was they were going to transplant kelp from Catalina Island to the breakwater in L.A. Harbor to try and get bring back the habitat. And so I was a diver. And so that's that's how a marine biologist got a job at, at the port. <laughs> and, you know, and so we did that. But. Of course, in those days, I worked in the water quality lab. We'd go out and test the harbor waters, and in the inner part of the harbor, there it was dead. It, there was no oxygen. It was really bad. So how did the kelp do? Well, you know, the kelp, it, we, it struggled for many years, and of course now the harbor is water is it's got it's got great water quality and the kelp has kind of taken over it's all the way up the main channel up under the bridge and you know it's just all over the harbor now so it's the kelp population's done really well that's a good success story yeah one of many i'm sure that you'll share with us today yeah, <laughs> yeah. but so you were you were working in the port as a biologist and what was your career path uh, out of that well, you know, let me tell you, in those days, um, you know, biology was sort of the dead end. So I worked in the environmental office and then um, they also had an environmental office in the port of Long Beach. And so the director had retired. And so I applied to run that office in Long Beach and I got the job. And so over in Long Beach, again, environment at those days was a dead end. And so you, I kind of had to move into planning and transportation. And then after I did that, I went into development. I also had a background in environmental analysis and things like that. So I kind of worked my way up to the number two spot in Long Beach, managing director. And then when Antonio Villaraigosa became mayor and he was looking for a port director, I went back to L.A. So and and 
you thought you weren't going back to LA. Just briefly tell us how your husband helped you get that job. Oh, oh so this is a funny story. So, you know, I was at Long Beach and I was like, oh, why would anybody apply to work in the city of LA? It's so political, you know, they must be crazy. So um, the job flyer uh, came into my inbox while I was at Long Beach and I read it and it was looking for someone who had an environmental background and an international reputation in terms of port environmental issues. And at that time I was chairing the port environmental committee, you know, the international one. And so I thought, oh my God, this sounds like me. That's really weird. So I submitted the application and, you know, a week or two later, I got a letter saying, thank you for your application, but we have more qualified candidates than you bumped me out. And so I thought, well, that's how could be, you know, who could be more qualified number two at Long Beach for a job at LA? It didn't make sense to me, but I thought it's political. It's wired for somebody, you know, it's not really an open competition. So my husband says to me, he says, oh, they sent you the wrong letter. I'm like, give me a break. This is a big, big recruiting firm. They're not going to send the wrong letter. He said, no, they sent you the wrong letter. So we went back and forth on this in the kitchen, over the kitchen counter. And finally I said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to call them. And so that was an awkward phone call. Oh, you're dialing. What am I going to say? Uh, Hi, I'm Geraldine Nats. Uh, did you send me the wrong letter? I'm really better than you think. It was like, oh my God. And so I make the call, my husband's standing there and the woman like, you know, she says, okay, hold on. And then I hear her ruffling papers and I'm like, she comes on, we sent you the wrong letter. No way. Yes. And so I was like, okay, that was great. But then of course my husband was right, you know? So, so, so then she said, okay, we're sending you a new letter. So, cause this is not the end of the story. They sent the new letter and it was a, had my address, but it was addressed to a man whose name I didn't recognize, setting an appointment for 6 p.m. at a hotel up in LAX in this room in the hotel. So I thought, oh, my God, you know, they just tacked me on the end of the day. And I said, this is I'm just going to show up in this guy's spot and see what happens. And so, so I did, and um, they were expecting me. And I guess they were, the person was, you know, not only sending out the wrong letters, but boilerplating them and not changing the names. And so I showed up and, you know, I wound up getting the job, but yeah, that, that was really a experience. You talk about, you worked for years in the port of Long Beach and you didn't like the politics of the port of LA. Um, when you go there, you can't tell one from the other. This is the largest port complex in the Western Hemisphere. It's got its own AAA map. It's over 20 square miles. Um, people don't understand much about ports. 90% of our goods cross over uh, the docks of America's ports. And I think something like half of all goods made in China cross your port complex. What don't people understand about ports? You know, you're right. Um, people don't really understand what happens at the ports. I would say a lot of people in Southern California have probably never been to the port, unless maybe they took a cruise, like a carnival cruise out of Long Beach or LA, or maybe they took the ferry to Catalina. There wouldn't be a reason to draw the average person down to the port. But it is really a fascinating place. And it's, it's San Pedro Bay. 
you can, you know, take a boat from one side to the other. You can drive your car across Terminal Island, but you don't really know when you've gone from one port to another. When the Panama Canal was opening and they were doing a little marketing brochure, the Panama Canal folks, and they, they, um, they put, you know, um, San Pedro, the port of LA on the map, like up, you know, north of Santa Barbara or something. They just got it in the wrong spot. It was just in those days, not that very important. Of course, now it is extremely important. And half of the cargo coming in through LA and Long Beach it's on a train and goes east of the Rocky Mountains. The second biggest market for LA goods is um, the Chicago area, America's Heartland. So Geraldine, I live in, in Colorado and people might not even make the connection between the ports and small towns throughout the United States. Tell us a little bit more about how important they are and how it actually works to get the goods moved out across America. Yeah, well, basically, one of the, you know, why LA is, is so important is uh, not only because of its location on the Pacific Rim, um, but because it has really great rail and highway connections. As a matter of fact, one time we did a study and um, we traced goods coming through the Port of LA to every congressional district in the you know, the lower 48 basically states. And so of course this was very handy for um, cocktail party conversation with a congressperson from anywhere. So, you know, LA, we can say we can ship your goods anywhere. So, um, you know, people, you know, when you go into the store, you know, they don't make the connection when they take something off the shelf. And so many of our goods are made in China that um, it came through Los Angeles and Long Beach in, in most cases. When you were hired in 2014 at the port, they were looking for an environmental person in large measure because the ports were incredibly polluted. The air pollution was impacting fence line communities, San Pedro, Wilmington, Long Beach that were largely low income communities of color and the like. And um, so there's real community displeasures, put it mildly, with the ports. And, and you can talk about what was happening, uh, how that was impacting the communities in the ports and how you responded. Yeah, it, it actually was 2006 when I made the jump from Long Beach over to LA. And at the time that I went there, neither port had been able to get an environmental impact report before our board and get a project approved for five years. And so there was a lot going on in Los Angeles at that time. Um, there was a Mayor Hahn, you know, had set up a no net increase, no net increase in air pollution plan. And they were working on that. And, you know, I was sitting over there at Long Beach and there was a big call for doing health risk assessments. And so the, the impact of diesel exhaust as a carcinogen on, you know, the propensity of getting cancer, basically, is what we were doing. And, and, and so the terminals were not expanding because of lawsuits from these communities. Well, yes, exactly. And there were, you know, everything was sort of like stopped in terms of expansion plans. So while I was at Long Beach, we said, okay, we've got this, you know, future terminal we want to do, let's run the health risk assessment. We got the results back. And I was shocked. 
at the, you know, I mean, the HUMD's threshold is for significance is 10 additional cancer, you know, exposures in a million cases. So, so I was like, I had done that um, health risk assessment and LA hadn't done one yet. And it happened then to be the time when I went to interview for the job at LA. And so I, when I went into the interview, I, you know, and talking with the mayor, I was able to say, well, one of the things I said in the interview was like, oh my God, we have to get rid of these dirty trucks because they're just driving that health risk. And so, and I learned later that when I said that in the interview, that the board chairman at the time picked up on that and said, this is the person because he too uh, also had the same view, like, oh my God, we really can't, you know, we, he and I agreed, no net increase wasn't good enough. You know, you can do an EIR and you get, get your impacts back to baseline, but the baseline sucked. You know, we had to really reduce emissions. So we had to come up with a plan, which we called the Clean Air Action Plan, that in exchange for development rights to the customers, the poor tenants, they had to adopt significant measures that would reduce the pollution well below what they were you know, generating at that particular time. And so we came up with this plan. And then one of the reasons the mayor told me he hired me is because I came from Long Beach. And so it can't just be LA's plan because the two ports, you know, the customers like to play one off the up against the other. And so we had to bring um, Long Beach along with that. And Mayor Villaragosa got along with Mayor Beverly O'Neill at the time. And so the two ports did it together. And, um, you know, we used the power of our tariff. It never really been used. I mean, it's what we use to set. Let me just go back a second. When you say the two ports work together. So even though when you visit, it looks like a, you know, a, a land of giants, giant cranes, giant ships, giant trucks. But but the port of L.A. and Long Beach, they hadn't had a joint port commission meeting since when? The 1920s. Yes, there were there were a couple of joint meetings. I actually go over that in my book. It was pretty uncommon. And those meetings were, um, you know, there was a big effort to try and merge the ports really on and off for, a, you know, a century. And that prompted some of those meetings. But when we, you know, actually, you know, developed the plan and we're going to adopt the plan in November 2006, we had this first, um, it was really the second time in history that there was a public meeting of the two ports of LA and Long Beach. And this time we had both mayors there and the plan was adopted. And as I said, we were using our tariff where we could set kind of like regulation. And, and you know, that was challenged. As I tell people, I've been booed and I've been sued. You know, because we basically for our clean truck program, we were going to ban trucks by model year. You know, they come up to the gate and if they, you know, they, they couldn't get in, you know, we block access. And that was challenged all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court.
And that's because you had thousands of dirty older trucks going in and out of the ports with containers on their um, on their chassis. And you said you actually had your plan in depth. So if you lost one case in court, you had another plan. And this was kind of a, a strategy that that really seemed to work. You, you reduced pollution 70% over the next five years. It, it was pretty phenomenal. And, you know, we... Um, our goal was 50% in five years, but in actuality, we had a, if you didn't, you know, get rid of the dirty truck right away, we gave people time to do that. Yes, you had to pay a fee when you came in the gate. It was $70 and, um, you know, for a 40 foot, you know, container coming through. And so the fee was set so that within 18 months, if that truck was coming to the port frequently, you could have bought a new truck for what those fees would amount to. So really in the space of two years, we turned over the entire truck fleet. And so it was kind of, you know, and that was in the depth of our um, recession. So um, big class eight heavy duty trucks were selling really well in Southern California. It was a bright spot in the economy because they weren't selling anyplace else because of the, of the recession that we were in. And so that's why the, um, the plan had such a remarkable um, success. The other thing is we um, wanted to, the question of whether the port can regulate the fuel and ships is, is kind of one that was a little dicey, you know? And so we wanted to get the um, ocean carriers to go to low sulfur fuel when they got to the AQMD, the boundary of the basin out at sea, like 20 miles out to sea. And so original, you know, the first iteration of our plan was to, we will pay the differential in fuel prices between the dirty, heavy fuel that you usually burn and the cleaner diesel. And so we did that for the first year as a way to get the industry on board with making that switch over. You know, a lot of the ocean carriers were like, ah, the ship's going to stall, we'll lose power, you know, but, you know, when they wasn't going to cost them anything to try, they tried. And then many of them got on board with that. And of course, then there was the regulation that came in after that, that kind of backstopped all of the port plans. And, and when the ships came into port, they used to just burn bunker fuel, which is like the dregs of the petroleum process. Now you gave them an, another alternative as well. Yes, they hooked a shoreside electrical power. And that was very significant um, in terms of reducing, because one, big container ship, you know, sitting at the, a berth for one day. I mean, I can't remember the number, but it was, you know, the number of cars equivalency in terms of the pollution it would generate in 24 hours. It's a huge number, but that was also, so the combination of the ship's fuel, shoreside power and getting rid of the dirty trucks um, really drove the, that, you know, 70 to 80% um, reduction in diesel particulates in those very early years of the plan. So. Geraldine, so with all the initiatives that you took, have you seen other ports adopt to your um, initiatives? Have you seen improvements in other regions? 
Oh, of course, because, and actually we work pretty closely with the NRDC and um, they, you know, and part of their strategy was, hey, they're doing it in LA and Long Beach. You can do it over here. You can do it in these other major urban areas. And of course, one of the things that, you know, LA and Long Beach had working together is really market power. You know, we were big. You know, we did, we were the ones who could start this because, and, and people called us arrogant because of this, because we knew the customers could not go anyplace else. It couldn't, a plan like this couldn't have started at a smaller port because, you know, the customer would have said, well, you know, if we're not going to come into, you know, Charleston, we'll go to Savannah. You know, there were a lot of options. But LA Long Beach had market power. And this was really a time when they used that market power to drive change. Well, you sure have made an impact in other regions. And, and this kind of ties into a little bit of the effort that we're seeing now with the Ocean Climate Action Plan, greening the ports. So do you feel like you're one of the early pioneers to actually help shift this consciousness to get the ports cleaned up and really get them ready for our next moving into the 2021 and forward? You know, I guess the answer is yes, but I have to say I had a lot of support from not only our board chairman and the board members, David Freeman was the chairman, you know, he was nicknamed the green cowboy and the mayor put him there because he wanted change and the mayor. And at one point I had to go to the mayor and say, mayor, the downside of the clean truck program is we might lose 15% of our cargo volume. Because um, I had a look at the consequences of this. And, you know, you need to know that, you know, if our numbers drop. And he was like, go for it. And so you don't always get that kind of support. And, um, but with that support, we were able to do it. And you know what? Those losses did not materialize because all of a sudden the customers saw some benefits to being green and, and publicizing that they were green. And the early uh, trucking companies with the clean trucks, they were advertising, hey, you know, ship with us because we have the clean trucks, the newer trucks, and you don't have to pay that fee. And that really, you know, their businesses did really well. And that caused then the other companies to really jump on board um, really quickly. So it was that it was market driven. But as I said, we used our market power. And, and in amazing ways. I mean, I use this as an example of really how California takes leadership where you, you know, you did the right thing environmentally, ended up selling a lot of clean new trucks in a recession, got the shipping industry on board, dropped the pollution, which translated into public health quality for low-income communities who dropped the lawsuits, allowed you to expand your terminals and, you know, in, in a port complex where billion dollars of goods a day crosses those docks. So uh, I think you're, you're the proof that doing right by the environment actually does right by the economy. And, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for expansion, even if you have to uh, drag your customers kicking and screaming <laughs> to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, I can remember one of the customers saying to me, he said, I remember my first meeting with you. I left thinking this woman is crazy. And he said, but you were right. 
you know, looking at the possibility of, of not just ports, but shipping itself moving toward you know, zero emissions and a shift from fossil fuels to clean forms of energy, which is a, a huge global challenge. Now, you were, uh, you were president of the International Association of Ports and Harbors. How is it working at the global level? Has it begun? Yes, it has. The uh, International Maritime Organization, which is that part of the UN that, you know, deals with ocean shipping and the control of pollution. You know, they have a, a, a um, plan by 2050 to reduce the emissions of shipping by 50%. But the, the ocean carriers will tell you that they need to have these vessels in 2030, out on the seas in 2035 to make the 2050 goal. You know, so it's like we don't have a whole lot of time for that. And so by not being, you know, aggressive early on, that's where, you know, you really you don't want to wait till the last 10 years and try to because it's just not enough time. You really got to go hard in those first years. That's what we did in the cleaner action plan. We really went hard in those first years. It builds that momentum. You can look at the big international banks now in terms of their financing for ships. They want to know the efficiency index of these ships. They want They don't want to finance, you know, ship purchases that are not going to meet the latest standards. So there's been a lot of international collaboration on the business side. I wanted to ask you, being a woman in, I would say, a man's world, um, how did you navigate that? What were some of your challenges? And just, you know, what, what did you, what was going through your head often when you were trying to deal with these um, difficult issues, being a woman? Well, you know, I used to go by Jerry. And then when I got my job at the Port of LA, my first job, uh, you know, when I was still a student, I'd leave a phone, you know, call Jerry Nats. And then the first thing I hear, oh, you're female. Oh, you're female. So then I switched to Geraldine. So I dealt with that issue. Um, when I first started at the port, I was the only female that was not in a traditionally female clerical type position. You know, there were women in HR and in public relations, but in terms of the hard, more hardcore business or science side, I was the only female there. And um, I can remember in, it was in 2008, I had a female board president and one of my deputies was female. And we, we went to Asia and I called it the all female trade mission. And we went to Shanghai and we're in a meeting with the chairman of one of the biggest, you know, ocean carriers in the world. And he looks around at us and says, shipping is a man's world. So it's still pretty male dominated, but not as much as it was. And, you know, when you get the job as, as the, you know, the chief executive, you know, they have to work with you, you know, but there were times in my career at Long Beach where I was told, oh, we can't take you on a trade mission. You wouldn't be respected. You know, I, I went through all that stuff. So I just kept my nose to the grindstone and just kept working figured someday that will change. And it kept did. Your smile kept your optimism. <laughs> and, and when this large uh, shipper says it's a man's world, which it obviously isn't looking out at you, what, what did you respond? We laughed. <laughs> we laughed at him. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, you're a real inspiration. I, I hope that other women and young women and women of all ages 
um, listen to this, hear your story, read your book and recognize that, you know, women's job or woman's world can be anywhere we want. So it's really neat that you paved that way and really nice that you're um, continuing on with your career. And we're going to read all about you and hear about you and just thank you so much for being with us. Okay. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, David. Thank you, Geraldine. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>